Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. There is now, it seems, a political strategy that some have to essentially openly defy what the courts have ordered, or at least consciously avoid the thing that the court is asking them to do. That's a real problem when it becomes infused in our politics. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Dr. Kareem Creighton, an attorney, law professor, and academic whose work explores the effects of state-sanctioned racial discrimination on campaigns, elections, and governance. He recently joined the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonpartisan law and policy institute where he manages efforts to implement pro-voter reforms. Kareem, welcome back to Burn the Boats. Thanks, Ken. Good to be with you. Let's start with gerrymandering. We are seeing some egregious cases around the country. We have fought this battle in Ohio uphill the entire way. What are some other examples that you are most concerned about? Well, there are uh, several states that right now are working through revisiting the question of redistricting uh, related to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, which is a tool intended to prevent race discrimination from entering the crafting of voting districts. Our state that we share in common, Alabama, is leading the way, not in the best way, but uh, a case um, was decided by the Supreme Court sending a map that Alabama uh, had drawn back for revisiting, and they are now waiting to see whether the local district court will bless it. My sense is it isn't going to. It's basically as bad or worse than the first one. Similar cases in Georgia and uh, Louisiana are pending. What we also know is that in North Carolina, partly because of some of the kind of state legislative ramp, uh, well, I'll just call it wrangling with the state Supreme Court, um, the state legislature has now been granted the authority to do redistricting pretty much any way that it wants and with no holds barred on partisan gerrymandering. The state Supreme Court there basically eliminated a prior decision that it made before an election with different personnel that banned partisan gerrymandering. Now it has been reversed by this current court, by the way, with members of the state legislature now on that court. And so they're going at it. There's some other pending issues too in places like New York, Utah, but that the I think big concerns right now, in addition to Ohio or in the deep south. Alabama might be the most egregious case because 
the maps offered are in just total violation of the the court ruling. And I, I point to it because we had a similar confrontation up here in Ohio five different times the courts said uh, this isn't this isn't going to fly this violates our state constitution and the legislature didn't care how is that playing out in Alabama and is this going to be a trend well I think to take your last question first it is in different ways I think being picked up as a strategy that unfortunately Republicans have seen as viable when they don't have anything else so uh, aspects of that resistance or defiant strategy, I think, are cropping up in other places. In Alabama in particular, uh, it, you know, received about as strong a message as you're going to get from the federal court, certainly this Supreme Court, which is not, you know, a huge fan of race-conscious remedies or of federal legislation like the Voting Rights Act. They said, you know, in in a case, Merrill versus Allen, look, excuse me, Merrill versus Milligan, uh, we think that this case is a clear example of why Section 2 exists. We're not going to overturn uh, existing precedent that's been on the, the books since, you know, basically the 1980s about how to deal with these cases. And therefore, Alabama, you haven't complied with the law, uh, do better. And the state, as you say, turned uh, its work in, <laughs> into basically a charade in which they uh, gave the same number of districts as they did before and created a district that, at least in their minds, was compliant, uh, that involved uh, the county of Montgomery with areas farther south, but didn't include enough African-Americans, even give a semblance of a chance for black voters to have a chance to choose the candidate they want. And that's really the standard in uh, Section 2. We'll hear it on the 14th of August, whether or not the local district court agrees. But I I think the claims that they have anywhere close attempted to even comply with the law are silly. And the arguments that range from, well, we have to really protect other parts of the state to, well, we're concerned about, uh, you know, violating other racial standards if we do this too much. Those all fall flat. And I think what we're going to hear is a very angry local district court in August push the state to try to explain itself. Give us a primer on Section 2 and what it is intended to achieve. Sure. So Section 2 is a part of the Voting Rights Act that really reflects the same structure of most civil rights statutes. When you find discrimination, plaintiff can go to court and say, look, we don't think in this case the state has done its job. The specific standard there is to say, uh, we think district, where redistricting is at, at play, districts should have uh, evidence that uh, targeted voters, in this case, African-American voters, have an equal opportunity to elect candidates. What that basically means in practice is the state or whoever's drawing the maps shouldn't artificially over-concentrate or pack black voters into districts when they could have influence or actually uh, control over driving the outcomes in other districts. And they can't artificially crack, divide concentrations of black voters where they could otherwise uh, control at least the outcome in a district, choosing whatever candidate that they want. And ultimately, what the court found here is they did in some ways, a little of both. They over-concentrated in the existing district, a lot of African-Americans, almost 60% in one district. And what it prevented um, them from doing was crafting a district elsewhere. And one of the key findings to show that you're entitled to this kind of remedy is the evidence of what we call racially polarized voting, which is where we have clear evidence, a pattern of white voters who overall in the state are a majority being unwilling to agree with the candidates of black voters. And that's not necessarily a black candidate. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. 
But even with respect to white candidates, just take one example, uh, Doug Jones, all right, the last statewide Democrat who won in the state. African-Americans are over 90% supportive of Democratic candidates in general. The flip of that is not true. You rarely see white candidates, excuse me, white voters agreeing with um, the decisions of African-Americans to support Democrats, rarely if ever. And that's really the standard where if you can show that that's the evidence of how politics typically works, it's impossible to see that there's the kind of cooperation to elect a candidate absent a district like a majority black district. And that's why the order from this, uh, the, the local district court was so clear. You got to either create a majority black district or something quite close to it. That's not what they did here. The states that are going to such extreme lengths to marginalize black voters, you mentioned Georgia, Louisiana, Ohio, Alabama, these are Republican legislatures. Now, I, I don't want to get you in trouble because I know the Brennan Center has to be uh, nonpartisan, but how do you do this work in a nonpartisan way when the when the antagonists are so clearly coming at it from one side? Well, I'll just say there are examples, actually, including in Ohio, where some people uh, have stepped up and said, look, this is too much. Witness the former chief justice in Ohio. Look, when you apply the law, the law applies whether it's a Democrat or a Republican who's on the other side of it. And what we've found is you're right. Because politics have worked out the way that they have, uh, the one party state, if you will, are the heavily controlled governments that really Republicans rule the roost on for the most part. Um, have, I think, encouraged excesses. And, you know, we're for politics where people get to choose what they want and not politicians. And that's really the issue. So, yeah, it turns out in these cases, we see, you know, Republican legislatures in Alabama, a supermajority has decided not just to sort of, you know, nibble at the edges and try to get an advantage, that's politics, but really run roughshod over existing law to maintain a supermajority. And that's just not how we think democratic systems ought to work. And more important, that's not how the law establishes uh, that democratic systems work. So that's our job. Our job is to, along with a lot of other allies, step in and, you know, push the arguments to force uh, government to explain itself and, where necessary, get into court and get uh, judges to enforce the law that, unfortunately, state legislatures won't follow. And I think the other point to mention here is it is an important factor thinking about the votes of African-Americans who have not had a chance to elect candidates for a very long period of time, particularly in states with a long history. You know it. We won't have to uh, review it now. But the other part of this is the sanctity of respecting an independent judiciary. And that's the part that I think, you know, goes hand in hand with that same history. Uh, witness, you know, George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door. We are at a point where I think courts are going to have to ask themselves, if what you are doing is judging, and if you think your orders ought to be respected, what does it mean when a state basically, you know, reconfigures or, or reinterprets the words that you've issued where most reasonable, un, you know, people hearing it mean, would understand that to mean you have to draw two or very close to two majority black districts. That's not what they did here. And I think the court needs to, at this point, consider what's necessary to make sure its orders are effectuated. I definitely want to talk about that independent judiciary and the attempts to undermine it, but people who've watched the show long enough know I have a, a real affinity for 
Alabama, having spent my formative years there. You and I are classmates, high school classmates, of course. I'd love your thoughts on that Alabama super majority. You wrote this on on Twitter about the redistricting charade that they are pulling. The more we learn about the various interests at play and the Republicans drawing these remedial maps, the more it's clear that respecting the rights of Black voters per the court order was the lowest priority, if it was a priority at all. What is the response of Democrats in Alabama? What is the organizing plan to to push back, not within the court system, but on the ground? Well, you know, in a prior life, I uh, worked with some of those Democrats in the state legislature. And what I can tell you is it is not easy when you're a minority and a supermajority. Um, and I think they are working as hard as they can, given a very limited structure to speak as they did actually in this process uh, to show all the different faults and harms. They really also importantly presented alternative maps that I think are going to be useful when you get to um, the uh, district court to address that matter. But I think the point that you're raising is another important one, which is, again, one of the jobs of the supermajority, any supermajority, is to dispirit the other side, to prevent the other side from thinking it's important to show up and vote or important to even run for political office. You know, in Alabama right now, I forget what the number is, but it's easily over 40 to 50% or so of the state legislative seats in the last election weren't contested. That suggests to me that people have either decided, look, the game to be played is in the primaries and that's it, or that, look, it doesn't make a difference anyway. And I think actually that makes a supermajority, any supermajority, quite comfortable. They want to maintain themselves. But I think the challenge with lawsuits like the ones that are pending in Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia are testing the resolve of that. You can't maintain a supermajority if, for example, you have to create more districts where people who don't agree with you get opportunities to be represented. And that's the real challenge, I think, in, in a lot of these states. It is sort of an art form to try to present a legislature that looks like, well, you know, essentially in that state, with one exception, right, uh, all the of the Republican Party is white. And so if you're white, this is your place. And most, if not all of the, Demo- the Democratic Party is black. So maybe that's your place. That's actually not the reality, even though it's true that African-Americans are strong supporters of the Democratic Party in that state. It's not solely that. And I think that's the piece that, you know, again, this sort of gerrymandering kind of encourages. And I don't think that's really good for democracy. Cold turkey may be great on sandwiches, but there's a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some weird mind trick from your wacky neighbor or some sketchy message board. We're talking about our sponsor, Fume, and they look at the problem in a different way. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong. So instead of a drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? Fume is an innovative, award-nominated device that does just that. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. Instead of vapor, Fume uses flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses all natural flavors. You get it. Instead of bad, Fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your Fume comes with an adjustable airflow dial and is designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, giving your fingers a lot to do, which is helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your bad habit. The first time I used Fume, I was surprised at how it's so easy to hold and perfectly balanced 
and quite honestly, fun to fidget with. The real wood material and sleek design definitely classes it up. Stopping is something we all put off because it's hard, but switching to Fume is easy, enjoyable, and even fun. Fume has served over 100,000 customers and has thousands of success stories, and there's no reason that can't be you. Join Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the journey pack today. Head to tryfume.com and use code BOATS to save 10% off when you get the journey pack today. That's tryfum.com and use code BOATS to save an additional 10% off your order today. We all have busy lives these days and can't afford to waste a day stuck on the couch because of a few drinks the night before. Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best the next day. The first time I tried Zbiotics was at a wedding. As instructed, I drank a bottle before any alcohol. I was amazed at how good I felt the next day. Every time I have a Zbiotics before drinking, it makes such a difference the next day, even after drinks the night before. I know I'll be able to get back to my daily routine like working out or mowing the lawn with ease. Labor Day weekend is right around the corner, so make sure you stock up before the long weekend. Your friends and family will thank you. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com slash boats to get 15% off your first order when you use boats at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash boats and use the code boats at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode. This episode of Burn the Boats is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Now, when I say the word honey, you might be thinking about the stuff that comes in those plastic bear-shaped bottles at the supermarket. This is nothing like that. Manukora makes Manuka honey, a super honey that comes from New Zealand where the bees only feed on the nectar of the Manuka tea tree, making something that is rich, herbaceous, and complex with a creamier texture that is unlike anything you have ever tried before. You can use it just like the honey you're used to, but Manuka honey is super because it also contains unique antioxidants and prebiotics as well as a natural antibacterial compound called MGO that only comes from the nectar of this tea tree. These nutrients support optimal immune and digestive health, so it's a win-win. You can continue to use honey in all of the ways you love, and you can enjoy all of the health benefits of MGO as well. Medicora sent me a jar and squeeze bottle of their 850 Plus MGO Manuka Honey, their best-selling product. The 850 Plus Honey has this creamy caramel texture that melts in your mouth and is unlike anything I have ever tried. I can grab a spoonful out of a jar to put in my favorite beverage or squeeze some honey out on some toast or oatmeal. It's so delicious. Each morning, I start my day with a spoonful of the Manuka honey, and it's the perfect amount of sweetness with the perfect consistency. If you head to manukora.com slash boats and use code BOATS, 
you'll automatically get an extra free pack of 850 plus honey sticks with your order a $15 value. Now, I love the jar and squeeze bottle, but the extra pack of compostable honey sticks is perfect for whenever you're on the go. You can bring them with you when you're traveling, eat a quick snack running errands, and they are the perfect energy boost if you're out for a run or at the gym. That's manukora.com slash boats, M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A.com slash boats, or use code boats to get a free pack of compostable honey sticks with your order. You haven't tasted or seen honey like this before, so indulge and try some honey with superpowers from Manukora. Your framing of the role of a supermajority to dispirit the opposition is is just so moving to me because it evokes a century of that. I mean, the supermajority Alabama has today is an artifact of a hundred years of of voter suppression and voter intimidation. And I, you know, I think about the the KKK's campaign post-reconstruction, a hundred years of terror, which I mean, the legacy is so clear today in that dispiritedness and, you know, the continuing suppression of of that vote. I, I am wondering if, if between states there are opportunities to come together to look at places like Georgia and and learn how to fight back. Well, I think one of the key pieces of this is to recognize that, you know, by the time you get to the state legislature, um, you know, a lot of politics are sort of played out, if you will, which is to say the real action is local. Um, a lot of these people, long before they get to the state legislature or Congress or the governor's mansions, they start off in local communities. And so I'd like to remind people that notwithstanding what is currently true in your legislature, that might be terribly gerrymandered, that might have, you know, not enough candidates running to challenge people that, you know, you think don't need to be surveyed or aren't doing a good job of representing the community. Local government is a place where there's still space for new thought and often involve constituencies that are more diverse than, you know, larger gerrymandered districts. So starting there, getting to know um, networks of people who think things can be different and also just trying new ideas can be really useful. Partly, of course, because the people and the policies that are closest to you are things that should reflect your interests and it's easier to change them. Turnout in local elections is usually lower. So it actually doesn't take a massive change often to you know, change leadership. The other thing is, of course, it's a proving ground for training new leaders. So if you really want to build up to change things at the state on the national level, I always encourage people to you know, figure out how it is that decisions get made in your local community and show up and get other people to show up. That's really the building block for all of this. And, you know, whether the question is on gerrymandering or, you know, reproductive rights, all these things that, you know, people are now, or the environment, things that are, you know, right at the top of mind of people, there are things that each of us can do in our local government as much as we can also in the state and the national government, we should say, you know, present there, but you can have an more, more immediate impact there in your local government in ways that can, I think, build up to have much broader effect when you're thinking about contacting your state senator or your state legislator. They pay attention when you have power behind you. Right. 
Well, I appreciate your optimism. I, I actually share it, but I don't want to be naive. Are you familiar with the the story which has just come out of the the mayor of the small town in Mississippi, a majority black town, overwhelmingly majority black town with a with a white government that finally elected the black mayor. Do you know the one I'm talking about? So I think it was just across the line in uh, New Bern, Alabama, actually, uh, oh, right in the heart of Alabama. Alabama. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was, yeah. But, you know, that region has the same flavor, as you know. Yes. And but I'm familiar with I the mean, story. Can you, can you give us the, the primer on, on that and sure. the window it provides into some of the, the structures that even in majority black communities limit representation? Sure. So yeah, New Bern is a, a small town in the Black Belt, kind of west of Montgomery, uh, between probably halfway between Montgomery and the state line of Mississippi. And okay. it is a city, as you said, that has, you know, a solid majority of African-Americans in it now. Uh, it has changed over time. But until, you know, this year, uh, it had always had white mayors. And so for the first time, a, a black mayor gets chosen he attempts to do the things one would do as mayor, right? Uh, start to appoint people, try to get access to his office, and he's blocked at every turn. And there are these extraordinary like efforts. Liter- literally, they oh, lock literally. physically not people. allowed. Correct. He is not allowed to get in. He's not allowed to do any of the ministerial basic things that you would need to do to function as mayor of this town, even though he had been duly elected as mayor. And in fact, the old guard who clearly were not happy with this outcome, turned to the local probate judge to try to block a lot of this activity. And so there's now a problem that has now found its way into federal court to try and get some remedy to this. And, you know, I I was reading that and I thought, absolutely, to your point, you know, numbers only do part of the work. There are always instances where people who have held on to power, even illegitimately so, will not relinquish or share that power. It's a sad reality, but I think it sometimes means we have to go to courts to enforce the law. And, you know, one wonders if there are other places, I'm sure there are, where essentially they're out of the public view, you know, little small towns, hamlets, where this kind of dynamic is going on. But that's why it's so important to have, A, attention to these matters, but B, courts to back up what the law requires us to do, because otherwise people say, well, that might be the law outside of this town, but here, right, we're in charge. And that just isn't how uh, democracy should work. I'd say one more thing about that. You know, one of the other weird and uh, odd parts of where the Supreme Court has been about this was, you know, in 2013, they announced to the world that, well, we no longer have this present need for uh, having Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act which would prevent changes in law in places like Alabama. And without it, I think it has sent a signal. We have a lot of evidence in the Brennan Center about how new suppressive laws have gone on the books. It's also given, I think, aid and comfort to this kind of defiance. So now in order to get some answers and some remedy, this individual who is duly elected has to go to federal court, which takes time and money. And, um, you know, again, the voters in the meantime elected a person to do a thing and nothing is getting done. So it could easily be that this case doesn't get resolved until well into this person's term or if at the end of it. You sort of look at that and think, is that sort of the, you know, justice that we think our democracy demands? I think not. 
Tell us about the actual power of courts to deliver those remedies. I mean, you you said the power of the courts to back up the the laws that exist. I mean, that power is really uh, a figment, though, of our trust in the courts and our faith in the courts. And as we're seeing, when that crumbles, the courts don't have the enforcement mechanism. And I'm reminded of, I believe it was Andrew Jackson's quote about the the Supreme Court having delivered its decision. Now let them enforce it. How worried are you about this this mindset shift in which the executive branch is starting to realize that, uh, I mean, in places like Ohio and Alabama, not everywhere, but in, in places that we should really be worried about, that the court actually can't deliver on, on its judgments. Well, your observation to start is absolutely right. You know, the court's orders are only as strong and meaningful as we, the public, are willing to follow it. And by that, I mean, we accord courts respect and credibility because we believe the work that they're doing is, you know, on the up and up, right? The law is the law, no matter who's showing up to uh, invoke it. And I think you're right. There is now, it seems, a political strategy that some have to essentially openly defy what the courts have ordered, or at least consciously avoid the thing that the court is asking them to do. That's a real problem when it becomes infused in our politics. That was certainly not the case, you know, once we got past George Wallace. Um, it was one of those things that, you know, look, we fight in court about what the law is. Once the court settles it, whether we like it or not, we move on. And that's not what's happening here. I'd also point out, though, some of this is self-inflicted. And it's not to say all courts are this way, but we have a United States Supreme Court that is in the midst, in my view, of an ethical an existential crisis. It's hard to demand respect when not only you have members of the court being overtly, in my mind, partisan in a lot of their activity, but also not following codes of ethics that any other member of the federal judiciary would uh, be bound to follow. So when you're going on planes with billionaires or on a yacht with people who have interests before the court, it leaves a very strong indication that maybe you're not actually deciding it based on the merits that are brought in front of you, but on who's showing up. And that's just not judging. And I don't think that the court has, it's fair to say, the chief justice, you know, respects his position, but I don't think he's done half of what he should do to demonstrate that he takes this seriously and he's going to demand of his uh, colleagues that they do as well. And so I think that's one reason Congress has moved to adopt ethics rules I mentioned is also one reason why the Brennan Center has taken the view that term limits are one solution to address this uh, court gone amok strategy. I'm really glad you're bringing up the Supreme Court because I have this this internal dilemma about the fear of delegitimizing the court and that what that would mean long term. I mean, if a Trump 2.0 administration decides to ignore the orders of the court, God help us. On the other hand, I see the corruption you're referring to. Granted, it's it's on one side of, of the bench, Alito and Thomas. You look at the precautions that the progressive and liberal judges take to not give any appearance of impropriety, and it's striking the differences between the two sides. But you have a corrupt court by any definition, at least parts of it, on one hand. And on the other, the, the desperate need within our system to value the court's rulings as 
as a society, not because they have the power of, of an army behind them, but because they have built up this trust. And, and I don't know where to land, especially as a commentator on criticizing the court versus upholding its legitimacy. <laughs> I guess I'm asking for insight and advice. Well, I, I don't know that I have, you know, the perfect answer to that, but I will say, I think it is our job, you know, I know you also went to law school. It is our job as officers of the court to hold the court accountable, like, you know, respectfully. Um, yeah. But to say we are entitled to criticize decisions um, of the court, even as we recognize that the decision is due respect. Um, but, you know, we don't, the court, as I've said in a lot of places, gets the last say on a constitutional controversy. It doesn't get the last say on an issue. They operate as officers of you know our government that we elect and form and follow because it has legitimacy. And when that legitimacy is threatened, in my mind, I think it is right and proper to say that we think that there needs to be structural change. I think the other challenge, as you point out, is you know there are you know, a currently uh, structural challenges in pretty much every part of our government right now. Right, we have a gridlocked Congress. We have a presidency in some ways because of the Supreme Court that's been, you know, uh, limited in what they can do to address big problems. And we have a Supreme Court, as we mentioned, that has uh, ethical challenges. I don't know that we get out of this unless we think seriously about how to change the entirety of the structure. And I think it means that the members of each one of these branches has to acknowledge that too. Otherwise, I think, right, it's the crisis that leads us ultimately maybe to oblivion, I hope not. But I, I think the unwillingness to address this and acknowledge that, you know, the court is suffering from a lack of, in my mind, adherence to ethical rules and standards, uh, an institutional deficiency, then I, I think we are in big trouble, especially as these bigger and bigger um, structural questions get put to the court. If everything becomes political and it isn't viewed as a matter of law that we all respect, I see the whole enterprise being in grave jeopardy. Well, its entire legitimacy is based on that respect. So when that begins to erode, even if it's, especially if it's self-inflicted, uh, the, the system comes down. Can you talk about the reforms that the Brennan Center is, is researching and advocating for? You mentioned term limits. Sure. And I'll, you know, kind of briefly acknowledge that, you know, we have a wonderful team, uh, on we have a judiciary team that has done a lot of work looking partly at state courts for some answers as to what works and doesn't work. But our president, Michael Waldman, has uh, just completed a book that makes the argument that term limits actually among the structures that have been considered, he was actually on the commission that the president put together to think about the future of the court. As you know, he experienced it, it was the one thing term limits were that everybody agreed to. They didn't like a lot of different things, but the one thing people tended to embrace was the idea that, you know, we shouldn't have any person holding that much power for the entirety of their lives. One thing to note about it is that the American system is actually an aberration. Most modern democracies all have uh, limits on their highest court, their constitutional courts, in terms of the number of time, number of years that they can serve. And it's good for, right, refreshing the bench it's good because it prevents a lot of the manipulation that we see in trying to get people on the bench. But more than that, it just assures that we have representativeness. And so the specific reform that's being presented, one that um, you know our president has argued 
does that require a constitutional amendment, which is a big hurdle to cross, is just to change the structure of the court through, you know, typical uh, congressional statute just to say, look, you're on the court, you are a member of the court for life. But in terms of the people who hear cases, after a number of years, people rotate off and we appoint new people and a regular process that, again, doesn't wait on, you know, the actuarial uh, unavailability, let me put it diplomatically, of a justice, but instead assures every president has one or two appointments so that there's, again, not the sort of existential threat everybody sees at every election about whether you can get on the court or not. But the idea, again, is to make sure that people, once they've served on the court, continue to give service to the judicial system, but that we get new, different voices in the uh, in the Supreme Court so that we can make sure that, you know, rules are keeping up with the times first, but also that you see groups of people who can hear different points of view. And I think that's really an important piece that hasn't really gotten as much attention. The latest appointment, Justice Brown Jackson, was the first person who's actually been a defense attorney or a public defender at that. That's a perspective that takes you in a different direction when you're on the court. Sometimes you look at the same facts, you think of the same law, but you have experience that can inform how you think about that. That's probably true along a number of dimensions. And I think we should take advantage of that in this country as big and broad as ours to bring in talent and experiences that help inform the Constitution and the rules that govern all of us. I'm glad you addressed the the question of a, the requirement of a constitutional amendment for something like this, because I, I think a lot of people assume that the structure of the court, not our respect for it, but the structure of the court is sacrosanct. It's far from that. I mean, the numbers of judges have changed. I don't know how many times over history, but a lot, right? Yeah, that's right. We've only had nine since I think the early 20th century, but you know, the pay of the court, <laughs> the uh, cases that the court can hear, all of those things are subject to, because of the Judiciary Act of 1789, Congress is given the authority to make that decision. Now, it's this is part of the checks and balances of each one of the branches. You know, the Supreme Court and ideally works cooperatively to get, you know, laws that sort of support uh, what the court does. But this is one of those places where if the court isn't willing to regulate itself, this is exactly the place where you would expect Congress and the other branches to assure that the system works well on behalf of the people have every right to do it. And by the way, it's the same set of powers that Congress uses to change the federal system. To bring Alabama back into the mix, uh, Alabama used to be a part of what's called the Fifth Circuit, it used to uh, cover all of the South, uh, partly because of growth, partly because of the experience with civil rights. And I think it was 1981 and 1983, I think it was 81, uh, the Congress and its wisdom decided to divide the Fifth Circuit into the 11th Circuit, which now has Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And the Fifth Circuit was the remainder of the South, uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. So these are things that are just as common and in my mind, as changing, you know, the sort of function of the members who sit on the court, the number of people at any given moment who, you know, give service and can do other things that are useful to the federal judiciary. By the way, I love your phrase, um, actuarial unavailability. I'm going to... That was on the cuff, but yeah. <laughs> Very I, good. Yeah. I wish everyone a life of health, but to the extent that <laughs> things change, you know, you have to have a system. But, but, but it is crazy that that we have a system in one branch of government that depends on the death of its agents to effectuate any kind of change. I mean, it, it 
it's evocative of like dynastic rule, yeah. that kind of thing. You think about North Korea, I'm not comparing SCOTUS to the Kim family, but it is another weird artifact that doesn't really fit with the times. Yeah, I think, you know, right. Let's you talk about the Windsors, for example, but that's, that's <laughs> you know, the same thing. And actually the idea of accountability is important. When you don't have accountability, you do start to engage in decisions that are out of touch and maybe questionably not quite in adherence to what we think ethical rules require. We want judges to understand that their role is to follow the law, but we also want judges to understand they are public officials and that they are subject to, you know, review, oversight, and frankly, accountability from not just other branches of government, but from the American people. Yeah. Let's revisit politics just for a second in the time we have left. Is it true that Republicans are about to recapture the governor's mansion in all of the Confederate states for the first time since the Confederacy? I saw that uh, presentation. I, I suppose they have done quite well, Republicans have, in a lot of the states of the former Confederacy. I guess, yes, given the potential outcomes, the governor's chairs, I think at least in Louisiana, and I forget where the other one is, but yeah, that's, oh, North Carolina. Those are the two states that are in the South that have Democratic governors. They will be heavily contested this year and next. And, and Mississippi is up as well, but it's possible, sure. And, you know, you'll have to think a little bit about what that means and what the modern Republican Party means, right? It was the Republican Party that, uh, you know, essentially effectuated the union side. And we are now at the point where, you know, depending on your perspective, you can say uh, there has been a realignment. <laughs> <laughs> There has indeed been a realignment. I wish we had time to dive into it. I think we'll do an entire show on that. We've been talking a lot about civil conflict and what a, I, I even hate using the phrase, what a new civil war would look like. But that very fact that uh, that these governorships are about to revert or might, might revert to Republican control is just mind-blowing to me. Kareem, it's been great having you on. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again to Kareem for joining me. You can learn more about the Brennan Center for Justice via the link in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? 
These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.